This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. As you know, I uh, most Sundays, as the winter OPC is vacant, I go down there and preach before I come up here to preach the morning service. I didn't have to go there today, as Reverend Winge is there, uh, but it does present a bit of a conundrum in that you know I preach the same thing down there as here, and in order to keep everyone in the same place, uh, this week we'll be breaking from the series in Genesis and John and be looking at a couple of different passages Uh, to keep them in the same place, but also these are very good and worthwhile texts for us to look at. We'll be looking at Psalm 1 this morning, and then Psalm 2 this evening. So, first, if I can get the page, Psalm 1. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper." The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would illuminate our hearts and prepare us to receive it, that we would see the truth of who you are, of your concern for your people, but also what our priorities and what our concerns ought to be in light of this. For we see in this psalm, we see two ways, two paths, a path to blessing, but also a path to rebellion and destruction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go into a hobby store or a home decor store, you probably will see wall art. And depending on where you go, you'll tend to see Christian-themed wall art. You might even see like Bible verses and things of the sort that you can hang on your wall. Maybe you have some of this. We have some of this in our house, um, and that's fine. No, really, it's okay. Um, But oftentimes you will see signs and you'll see art and things of the sort. Maybe you have some of this too, and again, it's fine, but it'll just say, blessed. 
You could also, for instance, go on social media, and this is a very common hashtag. Somebody has something good going on in their life, and they'll post about it, and then they'll put the tag on the end, blessed. It's kind of everywhere. Almost everyone uses it at some point when things are going well, and they want to acknowledge that things are going well. When they like where they're at, when they like what's going on, when life seems good. Now, the irony is that almost everybody uses this phrase, blessed, this word blessed, and yet many do so apart from belief in God, any meaningful worship of God or faith in God. So what does it mean to be blessed? People say all the time, I am blessed, or they put up these art on their walls, or they tag their social media posts that they are blessed. Well, most just treat it as a passive acknowledgement that it's a beautiful morning and a beautiful day, and I've got a beautiful feeling that everything's going my way, just that things are going well generally, and so they'll say that they are blessed. But bless is a verb, and this passive use of it doesn't really mean much. Blessing requires a subject and it requires an object. Now, sometimes blessing can come from people to other people. You can read in the Old Testament, for instance, how when people die, they often bless their descendants, their offspring. Just last week, we saw in Genesis 24, when Rebecca was departing from her family to go marry Isaac, they gave her a blessing as she left. Earlier on in Genesis, we saw how King Melchizedek of Salem came and blessed Abraham when they met after the battle with the kings of the north. Now, these blessings involve the speaking of words, the knowledge, or at least the hope of good things for the future for the one who receives the blessing. But the most important blessing, the blessing of which all other blessings are a pale imitation, is God's own blessing on his people. We see God's blessings expressed throughout Scripture in his covenants, the blessings of redemption and salvation as they are so communicated and applied. These are the greatest of blessings. But furthermore, all blessings, all good things we receive in this life, come from God's hand. The people who say that they are blessed, apart from acknowledgement of God, show that some remnant of the knowledge of God is written on their hearts, though they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They also betray, in speaking of being blessed apart from God, that they don't really know what they're talking about, because there is no real and true blessing apart from God's blessing. So what does scripture tell us about being blessed, about being one who is blessed? Well, this first psalm, the first of the book of 150 songs and prayers that God has preserved for his people in his word, deals with that very subject, the blessed man. What is the blessed man? What is the blessed person? What are they like? What do they have? What do they do? What characterizes one who is blessed? We'll answer this question looking at Psalm 1 this morning in four points, because it distinguishes for us the blessed 
from others. So we see two points that pertain to the blessed and two points that pertain to the unblessed. So first, for the blessed, we see the righteous life in verses 1 and 2. Those who are blessed walk according to God's righteousness. And then second, we see the rooted life in verse 3. We see an illustration of that righteous life using this imagery of a tree. And then our third point, switching to the points that pertain to the unblessed, we see rootless life in verse 4. We see the opposite of the rooted, the blessed are rooted, the unblessed are rootless. And then our fourth and final point, we see removed life in verses 5 and 6. The unblessed will lose life. They will lack life. So again, our four points, righteous life, rooted life, rootless life, and removed life. First, we see righteous life in verses 1 and 2. So the psalm opens with, blessed is the man. So the psalm is descriptive of what sort of person is blessed? And what do we learn about this person? Well, first, we see that the blessed, the blessed person walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, what is this word counsel? We usually think of counsel as it's spelled, as it's presented here in terms of advice. You might need an attorney for legal counsel, legal consultation, that's probably the most common use of this word counsel that we see. This word can also mean a plan, a strategy. So this blessing, this blessing concerning counsel, it is concerned with who we are listening to, who we take advice from. Specifically, there are places we should not look for counsel. We should not look to the ungodly for ungodly advice. Now, we live in a world where counsel is available everywhere, and yet so little of it is sound, even less of it is godly. We live in an age of rampant secularism. Even in America, we treat religious freedom as the highest of virtues, when in reality there is only one religion that saves, and it was the predominant religion for most of our nation's history until very recently. There is a popular movement among young men. It's centered largely on the internet, and it's referred to as the manosphere. Weird name. I didn't come up with it. But what has happened is it's a phenomenon that's grown out of the society we live in that largely mocks and despises and derides and hates young men and treats them in our age dominated by feminism and egalitarianism as second-class people, like they are the problem with everything. They, society teaches and acts that it is evil that young men seek to be wise and virtuous. Such men are approached with scorn. And even many in the church can help to contribute to this culture whether they know it or not. So this lack of godly help and counsel available to young men has given rise to this manosphere where there's these online figures, these popular figures who 
uh, seek to give men advice on how they should live in such an age. And a very popular figure right now is one named Andrew Tate. He's very rich. He's very physically fit. And a lot of young men have sought his advice. The problem is, well, there's many problems. One is he's a professing Muslim. He rejects God. He also engages in all sorts of sexual perversions. He doesn't give godly counsel, and yet men by the millions are flocking to him for his advice. He's just one example, an extreme example of many, of people who are offering counsel but they give bad counsel, they give wicked counsel, counsel that's not really going to help in this present evil age, and especially not going to help the children of God. But it's not just a problem for young men. Women face the constant pressures of feminism and of the sexual revolution and all the counseling and advice that comes with that. Why do we have so much abortion in this country? Why do we have so many broken families in this country? It's all counsel that's coming from somewhere, and it is the counsel of the ungodly. Now, you may not have heard of some of these ungodly counsel, and that's okay. But even then, ungodly counsel is never too hard to find. There's always people who want to corrupt and mislead others, and particularly to corrupt and mislead God's people. But we are not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. But second, we see in Psalm 1, Blessed are those who do not stand in the path of sinners. Now this is not standing in the path or standing in the way as we would usually think of these words. Usually when we think about standing in the way, it's like, well, I'm in the kitchen when Heidi's trying to make something and I'm just there and a a physical obstacle to her doing what she needs to do. But no, this standing in the way, this is to be on the path as one who is traveling the path. To be on the way, to be moving towards the life of sinners. The walk of the godly is different from the way of sinners. It is distinguished from those who walk according to the ways of this world. Jesus puts this in the starkest of terms in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So there are two roads, two paths, two lives with different destinies. One leads to destruction, death, condemnation, and eternity in hell. Now, from our perspective on earth and our very short-sighted perspective, this can often look like the easy way, the path of least resistance. And it is sadly the path that many, that most are walking, the path apart from God, the way of sin and death. The more difficult path is the path of righteousness and life. It leads to eternal life. It leads to heaven. But it is difficult. It is the way that draws the ire and the opposition of the many, of the most, that are on the other path. They would say it is too strict. 
it's too outdated, it's too limiting, it's too bigoted, and this ist or that phobic. And yet that is the way that leads to life. And then finally, the man is blessed, according to our psalm, who does not sit in the seat of the scornful. What does this mean? Well, I just mentioned some of the ire, some of the insults that sinners lob at God and his people. Now, they're not merely confused people who don't understand. They hate God. They oppose him. They mock him and they scoff him and his word and his worship. Just this week, someone posted online, there is no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ. It's a true statement. Very concise, simple statement of the most fundamental Christian truth. This person was attacked by a sitting U.S. congressman who said that it was one of the most bigoted tweets, most bigoted statements I've ever seen. Again, most fundamental of Christian truths, that there is no hope, there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. That's bigoted. That's a statement coming from the seat of the scoffer. Those who look at God's word and God's ways and mock and deride, they laugh or they criticize. They have no interest in it. And those who sit in that seat, they receive no blessing from God. They have no life in him. So, we have seen in these three negatives what the blessed person does not have or does not do. But positively, what is the blessed man like? And this is what we see in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. God's people, the people he blesses, are those who know and meditate on his law, on his word and what it commands. Now some bristle at this emphasis on the law. Many even in our day and many even in our churches, they try to play theological tricks with the law to downplay the need and significance of God's law. Some will say things like, well, the, the law applied to the Old Testament. So for David or whoever wrote Psalm 1, yeah, he would meditate and delight on the law. But now we live under grace. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Or it can take more subtle forms. People say things like, Jesus fulfilled the law. He kept it perfectly for us, leaving nothing for us to do. Now, there is a truth and an untruth here. As it pertains to our justification, the obedience and righteousness that was necessary for our salvation, Jesus did fulfill it all. He did keep it all. He was the only person who ever lived who kept the law perfectly. And in our justification, that righteousness is imputed and credited to us. But, as it pertains to our sanctification, we are both called and commanded, and we are also empowered by the Holy Spirit to more and more in this life do what is pleasing to God according to his law. The justified are sanctified. Those for whom the law is kept will desire to keep the law. Well, to keep it, you have to know it. And so the blessed man will meditate on the law day and night. 
Now you might get some of this here in church. We're going to have morning and evening worship today. We read the law. We read the gospel in our services. That's one day of the week. Do you meditate on God's law? Do you meditate on God's word throughout the week? The word is our spiritual nourishment. We gather on Sundays for the big feast. But you still have to eat throughout the week. Imagine if you only ate one day a week. You might stay alive, but you'd be pretty weak and miserable for most of that time. Do you value the word? Do you value the meditation on God's law as much as you value food or the other cares and needs of this life? Do you meditate on the word day and night, every day, different times in the day? Do you partake of it with your family? Because if all the word that you get is here, you're malnourished. It'd be just like if you only ate food on Sundays and didn't bother any other day of the week. But it's not merely to do it out of need and out of discipline. The word here says that it is a delight. Now this may be the most difficult part. I mentioned some of the ways that people try to mitigate and remove emphasis on the law. That's clearly not delighting in it. If you're trying to play lawyer and make the law not apply to you, that's not delighting in it. But a still more subtle problem can come when we do what we're supposed to do. We spend that time in the Word, but it's laborious. It's burdensome. That difficult 18-inch gap between the head and the heart is so hard to bridge. It's so hard to, with our minds, study and know the Scriptures, and then likewise, at the same time, with our heart, love them and crave them and want more of them. That's often the hardest distance to bridge. And so for those of us who struggle in that way, we should pray that the Spirit would more and more give us that hunger for the Word, give us that delight in the Word day and night. So, we have seen the righteous life of the blessed man, what it doesn't do and what it doesn't look like, and then what it does do and what it does look like. But then we get an illustration of this in our second point, which is the rooted life in verse 3. Verse 3 describes the blessed person as a tree. Not just any tree. A good tree. A tree that's doing well. After the harsh winter we had this last year, a lot of our trees aren't doing very well. They lost some branches. Some of them look kind of sickly and dying. They're leaning a bit. They may not be doing so well. But the tree described here in verse 3 is the tree that has the best of everything it needs and is flourishing. It's planted by rivers of water. It's no accident out here on the plains that when you have water, when you have rivers and streams and lakes and so forth, you usually see trees growing up around them. Trees need water to live, and so they fare better and tend to grow. When they have water, they have this source of life around them, a steady and uninterrupted supply of water that they can draw from. But such trees are not merely consumers, they are producers. 
They have their source of life. They have water. They have nutrients. But they bear fruit. We often in Scripture see the godly life described as a fruitful life, an exercise in bearing fruit. Jesus' parables frequently use this sort of language. We're not merely planted. We're not merely given life. We're not nourished in life just for our own good, but so that we might bear fruit, so that we might multiply, that we might produce more of the same in others. We turn from worldly ways and love and meditate on God's word, and it bears fruit in our lives, both in what we do and in our witness and mission to the world. The tree described in verse 3 is fruitful, it produces, it multiplies. So too the gospel goes forth from those God has planted to others and a harvest for Christ is brought in. But that growth is also internal. We see that the leaves of the tree do not wither. The tree is healthy, the tree remains alive, whatever may happen because it is nourished by God himself. So the positive illustration is the righteous, the godly, those blessed by God, being rooted and steadfast and fruitful like a good tree. But for the ungodly, there is quite a different picture. And this brings us to our third point. After the righteous and rooted life of the blessed man, we come now to the rootless life in verse 4. So the righteous or this healthy and fruitful tree, as plant life goes, they're about the best there is. But the ungodly are like something quite different. They are like the chaff, which the wind drives away. Now this chaff, it is a byproduct of grain farming. It's not the grain itself of wheat, but it's the stuff on the outside, the stuff that has to be separated from the grain for the grain to be useful. The threshing of grain now done by machinery, but back in the times of the Bible, was done by hand. It was to separate the grain from all the other stuff. This outer coating of the grains, the stalks, the leaves, anything else, that was basically garbage. It was basically useless. It was the part that was left for the wind to drive away. If the righteous, those who are rooted in God and His Word, are healthy trees, the unrighteous are the opposite. Shaft is removed from whatever it was attached to, removed from its source of life, and left on the wind, left adrift, on the way from nowhere to nowhere, already dead, and yet still persisting in existence. This language of being blown on the wind is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. Paul speaks in Ephesians 4.14 of those blown by every wind of doctrine. He's talking about those who are in danger of being snatched away by false teachers, by, in his words, the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. If you're not rooted, if you are not held fast by God and by his word, the wind is going to take you off to death and destruction. There are so many temptations, there are so many pulls from the evil of this world. If we're not rooted, we're going somewhere that we don't need to go. And the chaff, they're waste, they're lost. The ungodly, those who walk in the counsel of the ungodly and stand in the seat of sinners, 
and sit on the seat of the scoffers, that is their destiny. They might seem to have the upper hand in this world for a time. They might seem to have it better and easier, but they're doomed. They're going nowhere fast. And this brings us to our final point. After the righteous, rooted, and rootless life, we come to removed life in verses 5 and 6. We see this rooted and rootless distinction play out temporally, but we also see that it carries eternal consequences. We read in verse 5 that the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. There is an accounting that must be given before God for our lives and what we did in them. Now, people in our time hate the idea of judgment. I say this a lot, but the one verse that everyone knows now, it's Matthew 7, 1, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Out of context, without proper understanding, that Jesus is really not talking about any and all judgment, but about hypocrisy specifically, everyone still knows this verse and quotes it. The truth is, everyone is liable to God's judgment. If not the judgment of man, then the final judgment of God. There will come a day at the end of time when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead in the old language of the Apostles' Creed, as we read earlier. And this division that this psalm sets forth Though it is often not clear in this world, it is made explicitly clear at the end. There is a separation between the sheep and the goats, the grain and the chaff. Those who are God's people will enter into the new heavens and the new earth and eternal life and blessedness. But those who are not enter into eternal condemnation and death in hell. We see in our text that sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Now, we are here right now in church, in a congregation. There are sinners in this congregation because we are all yet sinners in this life. But Christians are reconciled to God and are being sanctified, conformed more and more into the image of Christ. The congregation here prefigures the eternal congregation where we will worship God forever. In our congregations now, there may be the ungodly, those who just visit but have no faith, have no root, have no life. Those who might externally and visibly belong to the church, but in their hearts reject God. But we are destined for the eternal congregation, and in that congregation there will be no deception. There will be no faking. Only they will stand in the eternal congregation who pass God's final judgment, and He sees and knows all. This is what verse 6 tells us. This judgment is perfect and infallible. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. No one's going to fool him in the judgment. Those who belong to him will enter into his rest, into the eternal sanctuary. But those who are ungodly, those who might get away with faking it on this earth, there will be no more deception on the last day. Christ will tell them to depart, for he never knew them. So, 
In this psalm, we have seen these two ways, these two lives, the rooted life and the removed life or the ruined life. We've seen the godly and the ungodly. The way that passes final judgment into the eternal congregation and the way that blows away into condemnation. So what do we make of this text? Well, first and foremost, it puts before us an urgent need to be reconciled to God, to be counted among those who are His. We must recognize that we are all fallen sinners. None of us will pass God's final judgment on our own works and merits. The only person who perfectly passed the test of righteousness was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh. And praise God, His righteousness for having kept the law and for having suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sins, that righteousness can be ours through faith. If you recognize your sin and your need for reconciliation to God, repent of your sins and embrace Christ today so that you might be forgiven, that you might pass God's final judgment into eternal life. Otherwise, like the shaft which the wind drives away, there is nothing but death and condemnation. But if you belong to Christ today, while you have His righteousness by which you are saved, that's not the end. We are justified, but we are being sanctified. We are by God's Word and Spirit to walk according to His Word and will. We are to delight in His law, to meditate on it day and night. And that is the life of the blessed man. That is the life of the only true blessing that there is. All these things the world offers us and calls blessing are passing away. But life in Christ and living in Christ is the only true life, the only abundant life, the only life that lasts forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. It puts before us a, an important reality, the reality of these two ways, these two lives. The life of the man who is blessed because he knows you and knows your word, and then the life of the others who do not. I pray that we would all be found in you, that you would write your word on our hearts, that by your gospel, by the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we would be saved and we would pass the final judgment into life and blessedness. But also that while we are here on this earth, I pray that we would more and more be sanctified, conformed into the image of Christ, that we would live according to this word and that we would live it out in the world around us so that others might see and know. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.